On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. When Douglas took me to deposition, the videotape deposition, and Corey and I go over to Douglas's office in Beverly Hills, it was out the outskirts of Beverly Hills, and he starts interviewing me and talking to me. He goes on, he says, uh, did you intend to shoot him? I says, yeah, I hit him, didn't I? He goes, it wasn't an accident? I says, no, it wasn't an accident. And he, then he, he starts leaning toward me, he says, he goes, in fact, you said on the radio, you claimed that on the radio, you called out that you had a gang member chasing you with a gun, isn't that correct? I says, yes. And he leans right into me, about a foot away from me, leans over the table right into me, and he says, why? Because he was a young, young black man? And I leaned forward to him, I leaned right into him about a foot away, and I said, you're a young black man. I don't think you're a gang member. Well, I'm not pointing a gun at you. Exactly, I said. As we head to the last part of the Frank Liga story, keep in mind, once Frank was cleared by the internal LAPD investigations, he faced problems with a civil suit filed by the notorious litigator Johnny Cochran, who led the O.J. Simpson defense. I felt the need and the obligation to tell Frank's complete story, not just a piece of it, not just a retelling of that fateful day with Gaines. I've thought a lot about the ripple effects of the world inside the LAPD and how many lives it altered in horrible ways. Like a Russian doll, each one symbolizes or represents the idea of infinity, no end to a soul's journey no end to the lies and labyrinth of power and corruption. So let's let's back up then to Johnny Cochran and Carl Douglas. So as, as they file this lawsuit, tell me piece by piece how that plays out from start to finish. Well, three days after the shooting, Gaines' wife, I'm told, hires Johnny Cochran at his law firm. Johnny Cochran brought Carl Douglas in as an assistant to his law firm. And from what Corey Brent, the city attorney that handled my case, and that's the story in itself how I got Corey, because originally it was Don Vincent. But I don't think Don liked me, because I told him he was stupid and didn't understand, wasn't too good at his work. So they handed me off to Corey. Um... Corey told me that that uh, Cochran brought Douglas on to basically allow Douglas to be the king, follow the follow the leader, king in uh, police litigation. This was Douglas's career-making case was going to be. The name Don Vincent should be familiar to those of you who have followed this story from the start. Don Vincent worked as a city attorney. In the city of Los Angeles, he was the one who threatened Kenneth Boagney when Boagney wanted to give information to LAPD detectives about the participation of Rafael Perez and David Mack in the murder of Biggie. 
Don Vincent was the legal hammer of the cover-up for the city. He knew what was at stake. So again, his involvement in the Frank Liga story makes perfect sense. Almost too perfect. Frank doesn't mince his words when it comes to Don and how he felt about him. Turned out they lost money on this case. Uh, they ordered an autopsy, second autopsy. They were on the news constantly saying that, that I'm lying, that the city's lying, that the second autopsy didn't concur with the investigation for the first autopsy. Um, nonstop, attacking me, nonstop. Uh, I think I told you about the bug last time, the radio station in New York that broadcasts every hour on the hour that I was arrested and charged with murder, murder, and the shooting death of a fellow officer. Remember that? I don't know if we covered that. Well, at the same time period when this was going on, um, well, back up, back, let's back up a hair. All right, my wife's an attorney. My wife was a public defender when I met her. Then she quit and went to dependency court and was attorney representing kids in dependency court. We're going along. Johnny Cochran filed this lawsuit against me, but I heard nothing from the city. No city attorney assigned, no lawyer assigned, no investor assigned, nothing. They're just leaving me hanging out. Uh, so I'm worried about that, seriously worried about that. So I have my wife contact the city attorney's office, and um, they schedule an appointment to discuss the potential uh, lawsuit, which was currently filed already. And we go down and meet with Don Vincent, the head of police litigation. Don Vincent is, is uh, his assistant. Was, his assistant was an investigator, an LAPD detective. Jorge Ramos, I think. Anyway, we're in the office and Don starts bragging about how great he is as, a, as an attorney and how he's defended the case. He defended the case against Rodney King. And when he said that, I said, well, I wouldn't be too proud of that. I said, you didn't do too good a job on that one. And that kind of fired him up. So I'm a little upset because I'm... I get upset, not real easy, but I get upset, and this really fires me up when I talk about this, because it just drives me crazy. And I told him that I reviewed a copy of the OIS. Back then, in 1997, when a OIS, officer involved shooting report, was completed by robbery homicide, they complete the investigation and prepare the report. The report is then stamped, do not copy, each page in red. Every single page stamped, do not copy, in red. And then it is mailed out to like 10 command officers, the police commission, the chief, city attorney, DA, all that crap. Six of the 10 reports never got to where they were going. They were intercepted on their way. So I'm in office with Don Vincent, and, I, uh, and I'm telling him, I said, yeah, I said, you know what? I said, I reviewed a copy of uh, the OES report, and it was a copy. Well, how'd that happen? I said, I don't know. I said, every, the copy I reviewed, every copy, every page had read, do not copy. Right? Stamped every page, do not copy in red. However, the idiots didn't line them up with the copy. They copied the report, and when they copied it, the do not red, do not copy in red was now black and white because the color didn't come out. And instead of lining the do not copy up with the original do not copy space, they just stamped every page red, do not copy. So we've got a do not copy in red and a do not copy in black and white, which tells me they copied the copy. So uh, 
Jorge Romero, Romero, or yeah, Jorge, the investigator says he goes, he goes. He goes. Do you remember what copy it was? I says, Yeah, copy number six. He goes, That's our copy. That's okay. So that makes sense, right? So he, as he's saying that, he gets up and he closes the door to the office. So I say, Why are you closing the door? The secretary is an OJB member, Oscar Joel Bryant member, which is the black union member, which Parks, Parks was, Chief Parks was instrumental in creating that. So I go, well, there you go. That's how it got stolen. She made copies and sent them to everybody. Uh, and we looked at his copy. Sure enough, it was the same as mine. Every page was stamped red, but this, the black and white do not copy was still there. So uh, we went on for another half hour or so. And like I said, I, I told Vincent I thought he was stupid. I didn't think he was, was competent. And he got mad. And we left. And a couple of days later, Lisa, my wife, got a call from her friend in the city attorney's office said that Corey Brent was assigned to handle my case, which is the best thing in the world. So we go from there. Um, the, Oscar the Oscar Joel Bryan Association, a guy named Leonard Ross and Ronnie Cato were activists, severe racist activists. The Oscar Joel Bryant Foundation is a nonprofit that represents African-American LAPD officers and civilian employees. In May of 1968, Officer Bryant, working a one-person unit, responded to a radio call. The first officer to respond to the scene, Officer Bryant requested backup and single-handedly confronted three suspects without warning. One of the suspects drew a concealed weapon and fired upon Officer Bryant. Although mortally wounded, Officer Bryant continued to exchange gunfire and prevented the escape of the three suspects who were later apprehended by responding officers. The Los Angeles Police Department recognizes Bryant's heroic efforts and memorializes the fallen soldier as the first African-American officer killed in the line of duty at the LAPD. In my interview, Frank sets up the dynamic that the foundation behind the scenes was doing everything in their power to support the Gaines family and the lawsuit. And they attacked me every minute they could get out of the, in the department. In fact, when, uh, when Poole reported that Gaines had, a, had a credit, nine credit cards, one for $952 from Monty Steakhouse, and drove the Mercedes and wore thousand dollar shirts. Leonard Ross came out and said that we were just everybody was just jealous because Kevin knew how to budget his money, had nice things, and that was going on throughout the whole place, throughout the whole city, black and white, all the time. Now fast forward to two thousand and one or something when I started about the about the um, about the frontline video. The city started showing that frontline video in roll call training and roll calls to officers. I happened to be in Wilshire Division one afternoon at 3.30, which is where PM Watch got out of roll call, gassing up my truck. And I saw a sergeant there that I knew, so I was out in the parking lot. We're standing outside the door of the station in the back by the gas pumps, and we're talking. This probationary officer comes out of the stairwell, going to his car, sees me, walks up to me, looks at me and says, do you know who you are? And I go, yeah. He says, you can't be here. I says, why not? 
There's two guys up in the hallway talking about how you're a racist and you're not going to get away with it. Basically, two black officers, they watched, they showed that frontline segment. Two black officers left the roll call, went in the hallway, and were talking loud enough for this probationer to hear them that I'm a racist and I'm not going to get away with it. And he comes out to the back parking lot, and lo and behold, there I am standing there. And he's concerned that something's going to happen, so he tells me I can't be there. <laughs> and that's three years after the shooting. That's how things keep going. So take me through the end stages of the lawsuit. What ends up happening to the lawsuit? Does the Gaines family end up getting money out of the city? And I think you had explained this to me before about the way that Parks and Johnny Cochran structured the payments to the Gaines family. Now, Dim Hahn structured the payments. I don't. I don't know. If they, I don't know if Parks had anything to do with it or not. But Dim Hahn structured the payments instead of writing three three checks like Cochran wanted. He wanted ninety, ninety, and seventy. To back up, we the federal trial was scheduled to start on, on November third of nineteen ninety eight. I was ordered to be in federal court as a defendant October third, nineteen ninety or November third, nineteen ninety eight. On October 5th, 1998, Cochran or Douglas shows up in federal court and files a motion that uh, demanding sanctions because the city failed to provide discovery of my personnel package. On October 6th, we show up, Corey and I show up in, at the judge's office, and Cochran shows up with his entourage. Uh, Douglas wasn't there, but Cochran shows up with like six different people, uh, six in total. And uh, I forgot her name. A female that was a mid. She was on the news all the time talking about how we're lying and the autopsy didn't match and all kinds of crap. But uh, we started out at $25 million. The judge comes and interviews me, interviews them. They don't show up for three hours. We start, supposed to start at 8 o'clock. They don't get there until 11 o'clock. Uh, then they break for lunch at 12 for a half hour. And Cochran tells the world that he's... He's got to leave three hours early because he's having dinner with Bill Clinton in Santa Monica that night. So I wasn't privy to this, but Corey told me that because they had me in another room. Corey told me that um, at the end of the first day, they were down to 800000 So Cochran went from $25 million to 800000 at the first day and then a couple hours. Uh, the guy that was running the show for Head Jim Hahn was named Tom Hokinson. Wilkinson was second command of the city attorney's office at the time. So we were uh, we were dismissed about 2.30 in order to come back the next morning. So I leave and I go home. And uh, I don't think anything of it. I'm still stressed out like crazy. So I go home. So 7.30 the next morning, I'm in West L.A. at the judge's office. With, and I meet with Corey. And uh, Corey says, guess what? I says, what? He says, your package showed up. I says, where was my pet? Where did it show up? He says, personnel had it. He says, Rich, his city, his his investigator, Rich Escobedo, uh, went to personnel on the, the night of the 6th at 4.30 in the afternoon on an unrelated matter to do some follow-up on, on another case where he was working. And the female behind the counter walked out the back room holding the package, <laughs> handed it to Rich, and said, here, are you looking for this? And Rich goes, what is that? And she basically throws it at him and says, here, are you looking for this? So he looks at it. It's my personnel package. He says, where'd you find this? 
It was in a back room on a chair under a piece of paper. He goes, did you notify anybody? I'm giving it to you, she says. No, did you tell you to notify your supervisor? I'm giving it to you. So Rich basically makes the notifications. He calls Corey, he calls uh, RHD. They call Parks, they would do everything. Parks orders my package seized and orders it to SID to be photographed and fingerprinted. <clears throat> um, that's all I know about it. I'm, Corey tells me that the next morning. We're doing the case. About 10 o'clock, Cochran shows up about on time, about 8.30, I guess. He's half hour late, give or take. He shows up with his entourage. Um, about 11 o'clock, 10.30, 11 o'clock, the judge opens the door to the room I'm sitting in, looks over at me, shaking his head. And I'm looking at him, and I says, and he goes, he, and before he said anything, he looked at me, he says, you'd have to be a moron. I says, excuse me, sir. He goes, for me to believe what they're trying to tell me, he says, you'd have to be a moron. He goes, have you ever been in other sh any other shootings? I said, yes, sir. He goes, when? I says, uh, November 1994. And I, I explained it to him. Anything else? I says, no. How long have you been on? 11 years. He goes, you'd have to be a moron. I says, he goes, for what they're telling me, he says, you hate black people so much that when he pulled up alongside of you, you couldn't help yourself. You pulled your gun out and shot him. And I said, well, sir, you should be able to follow me, by track me by dead black people. Because I see black people all the time. And I said, I never killed any other. First one I shot. And he shakes his head and he goes back in. And I'm sitting there like an idiot going, what the heck? And then we break for lunch again from 12 to 12.15 or 12.30. And then uh, Corey comes in. We're, we get separated again. And Corey comes in and he says to me, he goes, he goes, they settled it. I said, what do you mean they settled it? He says, Cochran asked for 250000 He said, he, this case has already gone on two years. He needs to close this case out. He says, they've wasted enough time and money on it. They need to get up from under this case. So he asked Hokinson, can you do two fifty from 800 now to two fifty? So 1% of the $25 million asking price. $25 million lawsuit filed against the LAPD in regards to the Liga Gaines shooting ends up being settled for $250,000. In the end, the internal LAPD investigations cleared Liga and Cochran didn't even take the case to trial, but settled the $250,000, which most likely didn't even cover his legal costs of a two-year case. If there was going to be any political games played, it would have been done at the civil trial. But in this case, the actions of the shooting didn't even warrant a trial. Immerse yourself in the fascinating tale of Song of Solomon by the legendary Pulitzer Prize winning author, Toni Morrison. A mesmerizing coming of age masterpiece that has captivated readers around the world. Follow the protagonist, Milkman Dead, who was born shortly after a neighborhood eccentric hurled himself off a roof in a vain attempt at flight. For the rest of his life, Milkman 2 will be trying to fly. As Morrison follows Milkman on a quest to uncover his roots and himself in his Rust Belt hometown to the place of his family's origins, she introduces an entire cast of strivers, 
and seeresses, liars and assassins, the inhabitants of a fully realized black world. As the New Yorker put it, Morrison moves easily in and out of the lives and thoughts of her characters, luxuriating in the diversity of circumstances and personality. Whether you're a seasoned reader or new to Toni Morrison, Song of Solomon is a must-read that will ignite your imagination and leave you wanting to read more Morrison. Song of Solomon, a timeless tale that will stay with you long after you've turned its final page. Available now at TonyMorrison.com and wherever books are sold. All right, so life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to 100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So maybe you need to get your kids something special or you and the wife need a scintillating night out every once in a while at least. So download Earn In Today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in the dossier under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com forward slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. And a judge comes in back at the door and he says, uh, it's settled. He goes, and I'm gone, I'm mad. And I says, well, you just destroyed my life. The judge says, don't throw a monkey wrench into this. And I says, Your Honor, you just destroyed my life. I says, I'm already being accused of a white racist, and now the department covered it up, protected the white racist and covered it up. I says, I got no life anymore. I got no career. I got no life. I says, I'm done. He says, would it help if I wrote a letter? I said, it wouldn't hurt, but don't send it to me. So the next day, that's the letter I sent you. The next day, Judge Schottler wrote a letter dated October 7th. I think it's the date of October 7th. And sent one to Jim Hahn, uh, Chief Parks. And he CC'd to me and Georgia Renee Gaines, uh, the guy's wife. Gaines' wife. And I showed, sent you the letter. Basically, we laid everything out that I did nothing wrong. Acted in the courts and policies with all... All aspects of this investigation, tried to drive away, tried to eliminate the, the case, get away from him. He chased me down, pointed a gun at me, and I shot him. And the judge's response was that the settlement nor the amount should in any way reflect on the conduct of Detective Liga, and that the settlement can be deemed political, which is big words. But the problem, nobody saw that. Just me, Han Parks, and Renee Gaines, nobody saw it. It was, it was buried and covered up. And it didn't, I mean, it was nice. I'm really happy I got it. But for 25 years, it didn't do me any good. Uh, maybe now it can do me some good. But it didn't, couldn't then. 
that was it. The case settled. I walked out of there mad, and you couldn't like I couldn't believe I was so mad. And then they went through, and uh, that's when I called up Internal Affairs because Internal Affairs, uh, well, Parks, Corey Brent had three investigations going to my personnel packets. He had, to, he had to have three interviews with Parks before Parks agreed to assign people to conduct an investigation on the disappearance of my personnel package. And I have the I.O. notes, which I shouldn't have, but I have the I.O. notes dating, dating back to uh, June of 1997 when Sergeant Paul Vernon supposedly returned him to personnel. Um, I've since been informed that that's a violation of my civil rights. Federal civil rights, Vernon maintaining control and custody of my personnel package. Um, and that's apparently, there's no statute of limitations on that, but I'm not aware of that. I haven't looked it up and reviewed it yet, but that's what I was told. Um, and then the package goes back to personnel the female behind the counter takes the package. Vernon supposedly says, do I need to sign something? She said, no, I'll take care of it. And he walked away, and uh, the package was missing for 18 months. And then it showed up. But in the meantime, I got interviewed and accused of stealing my own package. Story behind Frank Liga's personnel file is complex and filled with political landmines. What does come to mind when I hear Frank talk about it is how easy at that time it was to take files or documents and hide them, bury them, alter them. It brings to mind all the evidence that exists inside of robbery homicide and how that flow of information and documentation was buried or controlled by a few key people as it relates to the murder of Biggie. Back to the activity within the department is that uh, patrol officers in every division throughout the city were separating. The blacks would sit on one side of the roll call, the whites would sit on the other side of the roll call. Blacks didn't want to ride with whites. Well, I don't know if whites wanted to ride with blacks or not, but it was all over the city. It was all because of this. Uh, and it continued right through my whole career, the rest of my career. In... Um, it got to the point where I went to a commander. Well, prior to that, I told the captain, our captain, and I kept telling the captain to get a hold of Parks and have Parks put out a put out a, a briefing to the city, put out a, a memo to the city or a tape where they put training tapes, sent out to every roll call, learning out the facts of this case, clearing me because we couldn't go, we didn't go to court because I'm getting I'm getting attacked and killed every every time I turned around. And they never would do it. They never they never did it. Again, when Liga talks about the internal racial tension within the LAPD, my assumptions are that throughout the 90s and early 2000s, the LAPD was a department that had been besieged by scandal. Rodney King, O.G. Simpson, Liga Gaines, the murder of Biggie, the combination of all these scandals would divide any organization. And if you throw in the Rampart case, if you were an honest and hardworking cop, no matter white or black, you must have been scared of your own shadow in those days. There was so much corruption. I understand why the department would split with allegiances. Again, writing this, I don't think I'm equipped to really unpack what racism did to police departments overall. 
But in the United States, recent stats show, even today, 73% of the police officers in the workforce are white, of which 11% are women and 88.2% are men. African-American officers only make up 13% of the manpower. Um, so I finally went to a commander. I went to the commander of narcotics division. I forgot his name off the top of my head. It'll come to me. A white guy. It wasn't Pacinger, um, but it was a white guy. And I went to him and I told him the same thing. I laid it out. He says, I said, I don't know what's going to happen. I said, I'm being threatened every day. They're calling me names. I says, I, I, I walked down the courtroom, and, and I'm, it looks like we're going to have to have a shootout in the hallway. So he's asking me, I said, you don't have to take my word for it. I says, go sit on the third floor. Come in, come to court. I says, nobody knows what this guy looks like. I says, nobody knows what you look like. You're a, a deputy chief or a commander. Nobody knows what you look like. You're sitting here in the, in the, in the sixth floor of Parker Center. I says, walk over to the third floor. Go in there. Sit on a floor on a bench, and I'll walk out of the out of the stairwell like I normally do. And you watch the activities around me as I'm trying to get in the courtroom. I said I can't stand this anymore. And uh, he never did. Obviously, he never did. But it was to the point where uh, every night I'm driving home, and at this time I still wasn't allowed to take my city car because when they moved me to Major Violators to the lab team in June, I was given a city car. But I wasn't allowed to take the city car out of, out of L.A., the city of L.A. I lived in Simi Valley, which is, uh, I lived nine miles outside the city, 12 miles outside the city limits. But I wasn't allowed to take my city car out of the city limits. So I had to park my city truck in Devonshire parking lot, Devonshire's police station parking lot. And I wasn't allowed to park my personal vehicle in the parking lot. They said there wasn't enough room. And I told the captain, I said, well, I don't need room. You're letting my city truck park there. I'll drive in, I'll back the truck out of the spot, park my car in that spot, go to work. When I come back, I'll swap them out. We're using one space. He wouldn't allow me to, couldn't do it. So I had to park on the street and sometimes down around the corner. I get get out of work about two o'clock in the morning and I'm walking, I got to walk out the gates and walk down the sidewalk to my vehicle. And every car that went by about stroked out, waiting for the drive-by. I had tape on my hood scotch tape on my hood of my hood of my truck and on both doors of my pickup truck because I anticipated somebody breaking in and setting something up I, I tried to check underneath it every night when I got back I did that for months it just was killing me I'd, I'd be driving home and almost every day I'm thinking I'm having a heart attack there's anxiety stress I'm having a heart attack I'm Almost pulling off, the, pulling off, going to the emergency room every day, every day for for months. Um, it still, it still went on. Then you get to 2020 or 21 when that Frontline show came out. The Frontline show was pretty good. That's a story to sell. You want want corruption? You want me to start into that? Well, let me let me ask you another question about yeah. what you just said. As far as the the reporting at that time, were there were there any reporters or writers who were looking into Gaines's background, or were they painting him as this hero cop, and you as this sort of 
you know, out of control narcotics guy that shot and killed him. What was the narrative in the media? That's exactly it. Scott Glover and Matt Late. Scott Glover and Matt Late from the LA Times. They were they wrote articles every day. I was also um, profiled every week in the Final Call. You ever hear of that? Yes, sir. Yeah, I was profiled in there every week, and how racist I am, and how much I hate black people. So you're but on, the, you're still on the job at this point. At what point do they come to you, and do they force you out of the LAPD? Can you can you start there? Well, that's you're talking 2014. That's you're talking. That's you know, we're we're 25 years later. So from '97 until 2014, that's almost 17 years. I'm bad at math. Right, 17 you're, years. You're able to keep your job for the next 17 years inside the LAPD. And I was working a clandestine laboratory team assigned to DEA Group uh, Group. Well, it was height of 45, and then DEA Group One in the lab team. I gotta say, prior to doing this story, I always thought that Frank Liga walked away from the LAPD after the Gaines incident in 1997. And talking to Frank, I realized he stayed on the LAPD for an additional 17 years, working for elite units within the department. Narcotics, a lab team, among other postings. It is the greatest evidence that the LAPD knew Frank had not done anything wrong. They had no recourse or reason for him not to continue his work. I handled probably 75, in fact, I know I handled because the director, the director of LA Impact told the Board of Rights that I handled 75% of the cases for LA, for LA Impact Group 12. Well, I was at LA Impact, well, I, uh, I won Director of the Year, Director Award, Investigator of the Year twice, uh, some other award. I won an award from uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office. That was, again, those are, you're talking, those awards, 2011, I won an award from, for the, 2000, 2003, I won the Investigator of the Year Award for LA Impact. Um, I won, I think 2007, I won another Investigator of the Year Award. 2011, I won a, uh, some guy, I forgot what the name of the award was, but an award from the U.S. Attorney's Office. 2012, I won the Haida National Investigator of the Year Award that was presented to me in D.C. The director of the DEA showed up and gave me this really cool eagle. Got a real nice picture of that. Um, not only did I continue to work, I excelled. I teach all over the country. I was, I was an instructor all over the country. I teach for California Narcotics Officers Association, and I teach for uh, law enforcement equivalents all over the United States. I'm the national expert in PCP through the DEA out of Quantico. In fact, I did a case in Texas, in uh, Pecos, Texas one time, with Greg Kading, I might add. And uh, they brought in a chemist, a chemist from Quantico to testify as the criminalist in this case in Texas. And when we were briefing him, and the U.S. Attorney and I were briefing him in back before we went out of stand, 
the U.S. attorney decided to use me as the chemist, the, the criminalist, opposed to this criminalist from the DEA out of Quantico, he sat in the audience and listened to me testify. So not only did I continue to work, I excelled, and I was really good at it. <clears throat> I taught search warrants and search warrant preparation to LAPD officers, all detectives and supervisors for 20 years. As we close out the Frank Liga story, I will sit down with him for one more interview that will be run as a bonus episode. To listen to all the unedited and raw Frank Liga interviews, you can also go to the Dossier Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash dossier. As we move forward with episodes, I'll be releasing and dropping investigative documents, videos, and supporting material to each episode of the dossier, which takes you deeper into the story. I set this up because I have so much investigative work product, I can't cover all this in the dossier podcast. Thank you for listening.